I didn't remember, but last year we talked about the Mekoshesh Eitzim. And so this year we're also going to talk about the Mekoshesh Eitzim. But when I looked, I looked at it, I saw it was different. I mean last year, from this year. So I feel alright. So you remember the story of the Mekoshesh Eitzim. The Psukim say, Vayyududei Yisrael Bamidbar, Vayimtsu'u Ish Mekoshesh Eitzim Biyom HaShabbat. They were in the desert, and they found somebody, or somebody was discovered, I mean they didn't find him, but they saw him, being Mekoshesh Eitzim. Now, in spite of the fact that we imagine we know what the word Mekoshesh means, in fact, the Gemara didn't know exactly what it meant. But it would seem that the description is of something that is prohibited on Shabbat. He did something that is prohibited on Shabbat. They grabbed him. And they presented him to Moshe and Aaron and Kol Ha'edah to be judged. What do we do with, we do with this guy who transgressed the Shabbat? <coughs> so this is like a difficult pasuk to understand. One of the things that the Torah Shebechtav explains quite extensively is that there is a Shabbat and that there are Isurei Melachah. It's true, the Isurei Melachah themselves are not explained in the Torah, but truly Moshe Rabbeinu knew them. And he knew that the punishment for being Mechalel Shabbat was Skila. He knew that. And yet it says in the Pasuk, Kilo Porash Mayeyaselo. And this is like, why would the Torah say, let's say Moshe Rabbeinu didn't know what to do. Why should the Torah tell us that Moshe Rabbeinu didn't know? Okay, so he found out. Because the next Pasuk says, Hashem el Moshe mot yumata ish, skila. Kol so then Moshe Rabbeinu found out. And they found out that the punishment for Hilul Shabbat is skila. And then the last Pasuk says, so, except for the fact that it's hard for us to understand, I think, why it is that the Torah had to say that this, like, remarkable event was not uh, something that Moshe Rabbeinu was able to solve without turning to God. And God told him, okay, so it's the Torah. It's Torah Sheval Peh that God told, told Moshe Rabbeinu. And so he did what, what he was supposed to do. Why does the Torah have to include the fact that Moshe Rabbeinu didn't know what to do? I mean, are we supposed to learn something from that? So let's look, uh, let's look at Rashi. By, uh, below, Rashi is below. You see? So Rashi is going to say something. Look, this comes from the Medrash, from the Gemara. Bignutan Yisrael means this was an embarrassment. This was in order to say something terribly bad about B'nai Yisrael. 
Shelo Shamru Ela Shabbat Rishona. Whereas the Gemara says that this was the second Shabbat after Matan Torah. Right, the second Shabbat. Shelo Shamru Ela Shabbat Rishona. That was the Shabbat of, of Matan Torah. So of course, uh, okay, that's terrible. But but what does that mean? What does it mean to us that some meshugane in the camp of Yisrael was mechalel Shabbat on the second Shabbat after Matan Torah? Okay, a meshugane. We all know. We all have met meshugayim. Right? Most people don't have to look much further than their own families to find a Meshuggane. So it's a Meshuggane. You know, he went and he was with Halal Shabbat. But why does Rashi say, Bignutan Yisrael This is in order to embarrass or to say something negative about all of B'nai Yisrael. What's negative? What's negative about all B'nai Yisrael? One person was with Sim. Okay. It's bad to have a, per, a bad person in your midst that maybe the bad people are, are affect others. Maybe, 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 maybe. But what do I, you call that Gnutan Yisrael? That's a, that's a, an embarrassment for, embarrassment for Israel. On the other hand, all of the other Jews, they see this guy being Mechal al-Shabbat, and they know what to do. Hitrubo. Hitru means they warned him. What did they warn him? They, what was the warning? The warning is that if you do this, the punishment is such and such. That's what Hatra'ah is. That's what the Gemara says, that the witnesses have to say, we're witnesses, and you're going to get it, and this is what's going to happen to you. And they don't say what's going to happen to you, then that doesn't count. It's not good Hatra'ah. So it was good Hatra'ah. So how could the Pasuket the Torah say that Moshe Rabbeinu, Lo parash selo? What do you mean Lo parash selo? Isn't it true that the witnesses had to say, that's what Hatra'ah is, the witnesses had to say, selo. So how come Moshe Rabbeinu didn't know? He could have asked the witnesses. Something here that is jarring. You know, the, the explanation doesn't quite fit in. Things don't fit in exactly. He wrote Parashma Yaselo, Rashi goes on and says, Lo you Yodim Baezamita Yumat, Abu Yodim Hu Ayushabhala Shabbat Mimitat. So Rashi tries to straddle both possibilities. He says, Maybe the witnesses said, Look, if you do this, you will be killed. That's your punishment. But they didn't know the exact punishment, whether it was Skila or Sreifa or Herig or whatever. They didn't that they didn't know. So the uh uh, okay, that's what Rashi says. So on the one hand, it's a shaila. Is that good hatra'ah? You know, it's good hatra'ah means that you tell them what's going to happen to them. Maybe it's not even hatra'ah. So the hatra'ah that he's not going to get killed in any event. So it's like Rashi is like getting us confused here. Ragom, kimo aso ba'asot. In other words, that's what Ragom, he says, he, he, he's talking about the grammar. That's not for us. In other words, why does the Pasuk say, Why does the, the Pasuk have to tell us where exactly they, 
they stoned him. It's, uh, it's not easy to stone somebody in the desert because you need a... It's good to have like a valley or like some kind of wadi or something to throw the stones into. But Yotzirotosa Rashi says that that pasuk has meaning for later reality. The Beit HaDin is a Yerushalayim. So the Beit HaSkila, the place where the punishment is carried out, is far out of the city. Right, that's why Yotziyuoto. That Yotziyuoto is not a statement of an accidental fact, but it's a statement about, about Torah Shavalpeh. That's the Torah Shavalpeh, is by Yotziyuoto. Okay, that's what Rashi said. So Rashi helped us a little bit. Helped us a little bit. Helped us a little bit. Let's see what the Ramban has to say. The Ramban says, So the Ramban... Ramban says, you know, that this parish is called Shlach. First, it talks about Meraglim. You all know the story of the Meraglim. Everybody likes the story. Like the good guys win, the bad guys lose. And most people will win after they get punished, which is also like a good feeling, like the, you can't get away with it. So that's the, the Meraglim. The Ramban says, the parish is called that the Bekoshesh follows the Muraglim. And the Rabban says, in effect, he says, how come? How come the Torah teaches about the Bekoshesh where they right of the Muraglim? Because what's the connection? You know that, that one of the methods of Parshanut that Rashi likes and other Parshanim like Ismichat Parshiyot. That somehow the order of things in the Torah might be meaningful. So, of course, uh, you can't always figure out what it means. But when you can figure out what it means, then uh, Rashi tells us, the Ramban tells us. As we hear, the Ramban is telling us something about Smichut Parashiyot, Smichut Parashiyot between the Meraglim and the Mekoshesh. What does he say? Ki hayab bizman Meraglim Because it happened. That's how it happened. In other words, it's not smichut parashiyot put together accidentally in order we should learn some lesson, but this is really the way it happened. First there was a miraglim, and then they uh, they did what they did, and they received the punishment that they received, and then came the mikoshesh. They came to mikoshesh etzim. The Ramban says, "Bizetam the midbar." By you, B'nai Yisrael, B'medvah, you see Pasuk Lamed Bet? Pasuk Lamed Bet starts with those words, By you, B'nai Yisrael, B'medvah, and it happened to be that they were in the Midbar. But why were they in the Midbar? Why weren't they marching to Eretz Yisrael? Because of the Miraglim. So that according to the Ramban, this puzzle connects the Miraglim to the Koshesh Yitzit. Since they were in the Midbar, that was the punishment. They were just hanging around. So they well, came the, the, the Mikoshesh. But what is he talking about? What's the connection between the Mikoshesh Etzim and the Miraglim? That's where it all started from. In other words, according to the Ramban, why was the Mikoshesh Etzim? Because they were in the Midbar. Why were they in the Midbar? 
because they were being punished for the for the miraculous. Let's say it again. Why was there Mekoshejitim? Because they were in the Midbar. Well, what does that mean? What do you mean because they were in the Midbar? Why should anybody go and be Mekoshejitim? What was the what was the advantage? What did he need Eitzim for? You remember that in the parashat Bishalach, Hakadosh Baruch told them they could eat man. What is man? Man is if you want your hamburger spicy, it's spicy. And if you want your hamburger hot, it's hot. So, what was he negotiating about? What couldn't wait till tomorrow? What was it that this guy was doing? This is not a poor person from some Balshento story. No, I heard Yom Kippur, he went to collect the, the uh, uh, twigs and, and branches so that some poor old lady could have heat. Isn't that the story? They had plenty of heat. They were in the desert. And they had plenty of food. They had the man. What is this guy being because he hates him about? So the Ramban says it was because they were in the Midbar. But the Ramban does not explain to us why he did it. Why should he do it? I mean, if the if the Torah takes the trouble to tell us the story, so I, I don't think it's unfair of us to ask the question, why was the Mekoshesh Mekoshesh hates him? Why did he do it? So you see, there's a Gemara. There's a Gemara about the Basra. That Kufya tells on the days about Benot Tzlavchad. Remember the Benot Tzlavchad? Now what did they want with Benot Tzlavchad? Well, they wanted to inherit the land, the land of Israel. Now, it could be that they were righteous women, and to have a piece of the land of Israel is a big deal. But really, what was the problem? The problem was that their father had died. And since the Chalukah of Eretz Israel was going to be made, again, to whom? Who was going to get Eretz Israel? All the males who were Yotzei Mitzrayim, who left Mitzrayim. So that if the male who left Mitzrayim had a son, so his inheritance devolved to the son. But if he had daughters, it wasn't clear that the daughters might also inherit the Chalik in Eretz Yisrael. So Benot Tzlavchad went to Moshe Rabbeinu, and they say, we want a Chalik. We want a Chalik. Uh, the argument was not exactly legal, but they said... Uh, they said, they said this. At least according to the Gemara. See the Gemara of the Basra, the Avkuf Yutet of the Bet, where we have the, uh, the source. So there also, Moshe Rabbeinu had to turn to God to find out what the Halakha is. He didn't know what the Halakha is when the inheritors are all daughters. Is it the same as sons or not? He didn't know. He says, so the Gemara says this, which is another way of saying that they talked a lot. They talked. He says, if our father had had a son, is that we don't want anything? It's not us. We want the inheritance that might have come to our father to be known. Like we want to go to Eretz Israel. And we'll put up a flag on the inheritance. We'll say, Tzlavchad's place. Like we'll have on the flag. That's what we want. 
So if they, if he had had a son who had inherited him, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't. We're not interested in in uh, benefiting. We're interested in the father's memory. That's who we're interested in. So they said, maybe, maybe you should read it as though there was a bat. There was a daughter who came after the, uh, bat leben, a daughter after the son. We also wouldn't have said anything. And then the Gemara said, Satkaniyote. In other words, they are Dabraniyot. And they are also tzadkaniyot. Tzadkaniyot, they're righteous women. Why? They didn't marry anybody who was not an appropriate shidduch. That even the youngest one of them waited until she was 40 years old to get married. Because they wanted to marry... Uh, of righteous people. So they were also righteous. The Gemara is trying to tell us that they were righteous women. So now there's a Gemara in Shabbos. Before we look at the Tosos, let's look at the Gemara in Shabbos. The Gemara in Shabbos says, What do you think about that? Who knows? You know why not? We don't know who the Mikoshesh is. We don't know what happened to Tzlavchad. So we'll make a Shidduch. We'll say Mikoshesh at Tzlavchad. V'cheinu Omer, there's a Pasuk, V'ayu b'nei Yisrael b'amidbar, V'ayinsu'u ish. U'lahalan hu Omer, Avinu meit b'amidbar. Ma'lahalan Tzlavchad, Avkad Tzlavchad. And it was the only guy who was mentioned in the whole Torah that he died in, I mean, except for Aaron Akoin and Mary. You know, like a guy who died was Tzlavchad. So he says, Ish, Mikoshesh. So maybe it's Slavchad. That's what the Gemara says. I've got Slavchad with Rabbi Akiva. Now listen to this. Rabbi Akiva, you know Rabbi Akiva is an important person? A man of authority in matters of Tarashim al Some say he was the most authoritative Tana. Some say. But it's enough. Rabbi Akiva is not even, you know, Rabbi Akiva. So Rabbi Yehuda ben Betera had the following to say to Rabbi Akiva. Akiva, bein tachu bein tachata atid litenet adin. He says, no matter what happens, you're guilty. Litenet adin. You are guilty. Why is he guilty? Because he said, the mekoshesh it's slavchad. What's he guilty of? So he says, listen to what the... Uh, what uh, Rabbi Yehuda ben Betera said, Akiva beikachu beikachu ta'atid 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 in kidvarecha if you're right that slavchad is the mekoshesh etzim or the mekoshesh it's slavchad if you're right ha-torah kisto v'atabigalelto the Torah didn't tell us what are you telling Russian horror? it knows what you're saying is we thought that slavchad was a nice fellow Right? His daughters came and they complained that he wasn't giving due honor and he's not going to inherit his land and blah, blah, blah. And you come and you say, So the Torah didn't tell us that if you're right, then you stop speaking Russian horror. But what if you're wrong in love? So you're saying that 
who by the admission of his daughters was a tzaddik, right? His daughter came and said, Tzlavchat, so you're being Motsi Laz. You're saying he wasn't a tzaddik. So how could that be? So this is what, this is what Rabbi Yehuda Bebeteris said to Rabbi Akiva, but we say, Rabbi Akiva, it's not likely that he spoke lush and horror for no good reason at all. That's hard to accommodate into our perception of things. I mean, Rabbi Akiva, you know about Rabbi Akiva, you know, he, he started learning Torah when he was 40, and he had thousands of students. The Gemara says 24,000 who died during the Sviata Omer, and then after they died, he reconstituted Torah by having new Talmudim from the south of Eretz Israel. That's all Rabbi Akiva. They say Rabbi Akiva spoke lush and horror in an idle manner. So he says, so why did Rabbi Akiva say Tzlavchad was the Mekoshei Sheitzim? What difference does it make to me? So I wouldn't know who the Mekoshei Sheitzim is. I wouldn't know that it's Tzlavchad. So I wouldn't have anything bad to think about Benot Tzlavchad. I mean, what, why did all this happen? Why did Rabbi Akiva say it? Rabbi Akiva certainly knew what Rabbi Yehuda ben Metera responded to him. It's not nice to talk Lashem. What was the point? What was he going to accomplish by saying that Tzlavchad is the Mikoshe Sheitzim? And what's the... What could the point possibly be? So, the Tosfot in this Gemara in Baba Batra says this. Says that this Gemara in Baba Batra seems to agree with Rabbi Akiva, who said that Slavchad, he was the Mekoshesh, Umasa Mekoshesh, Hayabitchilat Arbaim Miyadachrei Masem Raglim. And that we learned from Rashi. Remember? That it was the second Shabbos. Right after the Masem Meraglim. And that we learned from the Ramban, that the Meraglim came right before Tzalafchad, right? Okay. Good. Good. But it's there, right? The Gemara says, Shabbat Rishonah, Shabbat Shniya, it's a problem. But the Gemara says it. And here the Tosfot is repeating what the Gemara said. So, so we have a problem. We have a problem in fact. We understand that there's a certain kind of a trend or a thread of, of thinking about things which says that this was the second Shabbos of the, in the world. He says, Miyadachar Masem Raglim, Damaba Medrash. Damaba Medrash. You listening to this Medrash? Are you all there? The Medrash is quoted in the Tosfot in Bava Batra. And what does the Medrash say? Who's the antecedent? Who's the subject of that phrase? The Mekoshesh Eitzim. He was Mechalel Shabbos, L'Shem Shemaim. That's a good one, right? Okay. How do you do that? Shayu Omim Yisrael. Here's the key to solving the whole problem of the Mikoshesh Eitzim. 
which is uh, the punishment for the Miraglim was Shalovi Kanesla at Laaretz Mimase Miraglim Shuv Ein Mechuyavin B'mitzvot The new idea there's a new idea that in the Midbar as long as you drain around in the Midbar for no apparent reason except that you're being punished that was the punishment that Bnei Israel had so during the time that you're going around and around and going nowhere, during that time you're not chayavim b'mitzvot, which is certainly a difficult idea to fathom. Even though it works for Tosus, for us it's hard to fathom. What do you mean? We've been living in the diaspora, not us, but we've been living in the diaspora for the last 2,000 years, and no one came up with this idea that maybe we shouldn't do the mitzvot. I mean, maybe the Ramban thought of it, but he didn't mean it. He didn't mean that you shouldn't do the mitzvot. He just meant, he meant that there's a different kind of obligation in Chutzlars that there is in Eretz Yisrael. So here the Tosut says, Tosut says, Shaloi Kadesh Ma'asev Ra'adim Shuvei Bechuyavim B'mitzvot. New. So listen to this. Amad V'chilel Shabbat K'deish Yehareg V'yiru Acherim V'lo Nasu at sof abayim shana kedemukhe kroe. So, what did this guy do? This guy said, This guy said, I've got to prevent the people from thinking that since we are, are destined to dray around in the desert for 40 years, that during those 40 years we, we don't have to do the mitzvot. Because if you don't think that you, ha- you have to do the mitzvot, you can do a lot of averas and not get caught. We are not always going to get caught. They're not always going to be aided. They're not always going to be people there who are going to tell you, oh, don't do what you said you were going to do. So along came this guy, whatever his name was. Let's say his name was Tzalafchad. Let's say it's Slavchad. It turns out, according to this Medrash, that Slavchad did something bad. I mean, he was Mechal Shabbos. But he did it L'Shem Shamayim. What was the L'Shem Shamayim? He wanted everybody to know that the obligation to keep the mitzvot in the Midbar was in force. There was no connection, because you know, if you remember, the end of the, of the, of the, in the book of Ayikra, and again, now we'll see in the book of Devarim, there are a lot of mitzvot that are connected to Eretz Yisrael, about which the Torah says, you do the mitzvot. So people were liable to think that in the Midbar, there was no real need to do the mitzvot. If they were on their way to Eretz Yisrael, if the Miraglin hadn't happened, then they were just going into Eretz Yisrael. Of course, they'll do the mitzvot because they're going to Eretz Yisrael. However, however, if they're not going to Eretz Yisrael, for at least 40 years they were not going to Eretz Yisrael, so then the Kitavor Aretz, that, that kind of preposition, doesn't exist anymore. So when they're Kitavor Aretz again, they'll start doing the mitzvot. So the only way that this lesson could be learned in an objective manner was that he would be Michal Shabbos. Michal Shabbos, Meikor Adin, Midaraisa. We call it Deraisa today. He would be Michal Shabbos, Meikor Adin. There'd be two witnesses who would, who would be able to say, if you do that, you're going to be killed. And Moshe Rabbeinu, upon, you know, checking with heaven, would then determine that he should be killed. And 
as they stoned him, they realized, they realized that this meant that their obligation to keep the mitzvot was in fact there. So what's missing now from that story is what's the Havamina? Okay, I offer the Havamina. Remember, I said, why would people think they don't have to do the mitzvot? Because a lot of the mitzvot were connected to this idea of kitavol ha'aretz. Kitavol ha'aretz. Also the parashiot of arayot, Eretz Yisrael is special. If you don't keep the mitzvot in Eretz Yisrael, you'll be spewed forth out of, out of Eretz Yisrael. So that means that if you're not in Eretz Yisrael, so you don't have to keep the mitzvot. I mean, that's where the Ramban discusses, discusses this question. Now I want to look at the Targum. I want to look quickly at the Targum. The Targum, unfortunately for all of us, is written in Aramaic. This is the Aramaic of Eretz Yisrael. But it's good, I mean, you should, uh, it's good to know the Aramaic. Now, who knows? Some Aramean may come walking in the door one day, and someone will have to translate, you know, what he says. Maybe he's rich. Maybe he'll be able to give a large donation to Torah. So it would be a shame if nobody could speak to him. As a matter of fact, the only people who speak Aramaic today, at least as I remember from when I was a student, sometimes, you know, you learn things and 20 years later, everything's different. But this is like 40 years later. <laughs> but there are two villages in Lebanon where, where Aramaic is still being spoken. They're spoken by Christian uh, Arameans, you know, like Christians who speak that language. You know that the, the Kurdistani Jews, when they came to Eretz Israel, still the older people still know how to speak. It was the, the language they spoke was Arabic to their non-Jewish neighbors. But amongst themselves, they sort of spoke like Yiddish. And the Yiddish that they spoke was Aramaic. And even though if you listen to a Kurdistani, as if you know Aramaic, if you learn Gemara, so you know a few words in Aramaic, but you won't be able to tell a single word of what they say. But if you write it down, you might be able to see the Aramaic words that, you know, that we know. But the young Kurdistanis, like the young Ashkenazim, you know, young Ashkenazim can't speak Yiddish, and the young Kurdistanis can't be, can't speak uh, Aramaic. So, uh, so that's the story of Aramaic. The chances that you're going to meet somebody who speaks Aramaic are slim. <laughs> there are Syrian Christians. They're called Syrians. They speak. They pray. And their and their uh, Tanakh is written in a language called Syriac, which is Aramaic. It's also Aramaic. Aramaic was once very popular, very popular language, but it fell into disuse after the Arab conquests. You know, all the people who once spoke Aramaic became Arabic speakers. I see you're very interested in all of this. <laughs> But you know, you can never tell when a piece of information will come in handy. You know, just one thing or another. So in any event, this Aramaic, there are two Targumim, two Aramaic Targumim in what we call Mikraot Gidolot. One is Unculus, and Unculus was a Talmud of Rabbi Akiva, apparently. And uh, he wrote that Targum, it's very literal, not exactly, but very literal. 
and he wrote it because people understood the Aramaic better than they understood the Hebrew of the Chumash. Today, it's the opposite. People understand the Chumash better, I think most people, like I said, Eretz Yisrael, most people understand the Chumash better than understand the Aramaic. And the second Targum, the second Targum is mistakenly called the Targum Yonatan. In fact, Yonatan ben Uziel is credited with writing the Aramaic Targum to Nevi'im and Ketuvim. Whereas the Targum, the second Targum written, that's printed in the Mikra'ot Gedolot, probably should be called Yushalmi. You know, tough, it was tough Yud, abbreviated, tough Yud, and it should have been read Yushalmi, but then people started, because they knew that the Gemara says that Yonatan ben Uziel wrote the Targum for Nevi'im and Ketuvim, so maybe he also wrote the Targum for the Chumash, and they started, they translated Taf Yud incorrectly as Targum, uh, Targum Yonatan. But it should have said Targum Yushalmi. Then somebody found another Targum, and so now there were two Aramaic Targum, th- three, I mean, Unkelos, and two others, so they called one of them Yonatan and the other one Yushalmi even though that's certainly a mistake. Both of them should be called Yerushalmi. But who cares about these things? This is not what's going to get us to another spiritual level. <laughs> so I'm going to read and translate the Targum. Um, the Bnei Yisrael were dwelling in the Midbar. Gzerat. Shabbat, Shabbata Ishtimodalaham. They they knew about Shabbos. They knew that you couldn't do anything on do work on Shabbat. Bram Kinasa the Shabta Loishtimodalahom. But they didn't know what the punishment was. What would happen if you did something wrong on Shabbos? That they didn't know. Kam Gavram of the Beit Yosef arose a man from the house of Yosef. Now who's Yosef? Yosef. Whose son was Yo- who was Yosef's son? Tzlofchad. Tzlofchad was from Ephraim, right? So he was Mibet Yosef. He said, clearly, I'm going to go and uproot uh, roots from, you know, straws from the ground, which is an Isodoraita. And the witnesses will see me do this. V'yitanen the Moshe. I'm sorry. V'etlash kusu b'yobu the Shabbat v'yichamun yati yisadaya. V'yitanen the Moshe. O Moshe yitba ulpad min kedam Hashem. And Moshe Rabbeinu looked towards God to teach him what to do. That's ulpan. V'yidon yati. And they will judge me. And then everybody, all the Jews, will know what the punishment is for doing for being mechalal Shabbat. And so, in fact, the witnesses saw him do this on Shabbat. So that, that the, the tagum tells you from the point of view of the mikoshesh, at least as though it's the mikoshesh himself talking, like he says. I'm going to do this, and they're going to see me, and then they're going to be the Moshe Rabbeinu, and then we're going to find out what the punishment is. The Karibu Yatei Batar De Itrubei, the Talash Sadai De 
The, the witnesses came and brought him to Moshe and Aaron and Kol Ha'ida. Deinu chad min arba dinim di'olu kodom Moshe neviyaya v'donyaton al pum meimor v'kutcha. That was, these were four things, there were four dinim that Moshe Rabbeinu didn't know how to deal with. And he, he, he brought them to akutch kutcha min hon dinim omeno min hon dinim nefoshaya or the fishata. So we can see from this, remember this, Moshe Rabbeinu was very energetic about dealing with the Momon problems, but he was not so interested in um, in moving along the case, the capital case, so much because he didn't want to, he didn't want to be the cause of killing anybody. Um, I meant four lines from the bottom of this section. Begin Cain, So Moshe Rabbeinu had to say, look, I didn't know uh, what this was all about. And therefore they put him into the, into the, into jail. So God said to Moshe Rabbeinu, he should verily be killed. Throw rocks upon him. For outside of the camp, so that the Targum tells the story from the point of view of the person who did it. He's the one who did it, but he doesn't tell us why. Why did he do it? That's what he doesn't tell us. So now I would like to, in order to finish this discussion, Learn something for the uh, for the Einano. This is Rav Cook uh, when he was quite young. I mean, at least young in my estimate. He was apparently very mature and old in his knowledge of Torah. But he, when he was a Rav in some town, I forgot the town in Europe that he was a Rav in Boisk. Boisk, what? Switzerland? No, no. When he was when he was young, before he left, before he left the Lita. No, that's a different rabbi. I think it's Boisk, right? It was with Robert Boisk. He started writing a commentary on the Agadita in Shas. And he finished Brachot and Shabbat, right? which has then recently been published. Right? These two volumes have recently been published. And uh, he never continued it, at least not that we, I know of. Maybe there's some machperet hidden away someplace. But I think it just brachot and Shabbat. So on Shabbat, on this on this agadita that we learned, right? That mekoshesh zetzlavchad. You see, you see the right hand column. Now it's a little hard to understand, but we're going to try. Rav Cook says this: Nachlat Hashem banim. You see that? Nachlat Hashem and Nachala is an inheritance, usually referred to something concrete, 
like land. Land is called a nachala. What you get there, it's Israel. What the Jews get there, it's just called a nachala. Nachalat Hashem Banim. What does that mean? What does it mean that the inheritors of God are sons? Habanim heim heim Yoshei Haruach Hayisodiyim. So, if you say that a person has Ruach, there's a spirit in him. There's something that goes beyond biology. Like you could say a person is 80% water and 20% minerals and a couple of percent bones and, and stuff like that. You could say that. But you could also say, as the Torah says, that there's a certain percentage of spirit. There's, there's a spirit in there, right? The Pesach says, Vayipach ba'apov nishmat chayim. When God created man, he exhaled into him, into his nose, some kind of spirit. So the thing that connects man and God, mostly, is not the tselem elokim, the idea of some kind of physical connection, but is rather the ruach. The ruach that connects man and God. So habanim heinhem yoshei haruach hayisodim. So who, how do we pass on that Ruach? How do we give over that Ruach? Right? Banim. Banim. In other words, the greatest thing that we do is that we pass down what we received to those who come after us. So well, what have we received? We've received... Uh, Haruach, Hayesod, the foundation of our being is Ruach. Ba'alei Hamorasha, Shel Hakadusha Hel Right? They are the ones who inherit the supreme, uh, the supreme spirit. Hamitnachelet. So that nachalo, that uh, intrinsic part of us, is passed on to our progeny. It continues always to be passed down. Kedushat HaShabbat, on the other hand, no, he says, that's about man slash woman, right? People pass on their spirit to the future generations. That's why every generation has spirit. I mean, it's like something that in modernity, it's easy enough for us to, uh, to understand. It's like a part of the DNA. Like it's part of us. So whatever it is, if we, if we feel that we have a tendency to be spiritual, like to look for the spiritual in things. So we pass that on to our, to our progeny. And then he says, he says, Kedushata Shabbat, who yisod nachalat Kedushata Dorot. And somehow the Shabbat is related to this biological potential that we have. To pass down the spirit is connected to Shabbat. How do I know it's connected to Shabbat? Listen to this. 
V'shamru, the Pasuk says, V'shamru b'nei Yisrael the Shabbat. You ever hear that Pasuk? V'asot the Shabbat. L'dorotah. What's L'dorotah? I know it means for generations. But what's it going to do with the Pasuk? V'shamru b'nei Yisrael the Shabbat. L'asot the Shabbat. B'rit alam. That's what the Pasuk says. It's a covenant. Shabbos is a covenant. All right, good. But what's L'dorotah? The Doratam means that that's part of the deal. That you have the capacity to pass the Shabbat down through the generations. And therefore, he says, Yisod Nachalat Kedushat HaDorot. So he uses the words Nachalat, Nachalat, which means an inheritance, and the word generations, which appears in the Pasuk. So a person has these two things that he can pass down, right? Two things. The first thing is the spirit, the ruach, and the second thing is the Shabbat. So I want to tell you, in order for all of this to happen, this is what I think what Rav Kook says, but maybe I'm mistaken. So if Rav Kook didn't say it, so I'm going to say it. So you can take your choice. You could say whatever you like. There is this idea that there's a connection between Nachalah and, in other words, Nachalah means there's a kind of a permanence to us. We are, we're there. We're there to stay. We have a Nachalah. And we can pass that Nachalah down to our children and our grandchildren forever. So Nachalah is similar to Ruach, which we can pass down to our children, which is similar to Shabbat, which is the mitzvah that is chosen to be the mitzvah of Lidorotam, that I have this capacity to pass down to my children the idea that they should be part of this, part of this covenant. But the midbar, the midbar does not allow all of that to take place. Because, as the Pasuk says, what does Vayu B'nei Yisrael B'midbar mean? The element of Midbar took over their personalities. It, they became part of the Midbar. And what is the Midbar? No place. And if you're no place, you don't get a Nachalah. You don't get a Nachalah. And this whole idea of Nachalah is uprooted. The Picador of Alonso says, the Pinkett Rabbah says, what's the, what's the Midbar? What's the Midbar? The Pinkett Rabbah says, Midbar is where HaKadosh Baruch Hu did not complete creation. We don't know about HaKadosh Baruch Hu. But what do you mean it's not complete the creation? What happens in the rest of the world? Not going to happen to the Midbar. It's true that today things are different. But you understand what Rav Kook is talking about and what whoever you want to say is talking about. That midbar, the punishment, 
that B'nai Yisrael received, that they would stay in the Midbar and not go to Eretz Yisrael for 40 years, was seen not just as being a hiatus in history, instead of history starting tomorrow, it's out of 38 years. Right? That's called a hiatus. The 38 years don't mean anything. But according to, according to Rav Kook, as I understand it, the hiatus was in the Midbar. And being in the Midbar, being in the Midbar meant that you weren't connected to a Nachala. Midbar is not something you can inherit. That's something you can get. Nobody wants to live there. There's no, no point of living there. That's what the, what the Midbar is. And therefore, and therefore, the, one of the obvious results is that you're going to lose, you're going to lose Shabbat. That you're going to lose Shabbat. In other words, it's, it's correct thinking. Because what is Shabbat? Shabbat is Lidorotam. It's for the people who have something to pass on. But the Midbar, the punishment of the Midbar was that they were in this place where they couldn't be who they really were. So the Midbar, the Midbar is what caused people to think that Lidorotam of Shabbat does not exist anymore. And that it didn't really matter it didn't really matter if they were mechaim at Shabbat or mechalel at Shabbat. So along came the mekoshesh etzim, and he said, obviously they don't understand. And so he did what he did in order that people should understand that chilul Shabbat was still an override, that the possibility of the dorotam brit olam and the ruach, even in the desert, even when they were in the desert, was still a possibility. And then, the notes Lavchad came to Moshe Rabbeinu, and they said, he said, he was a great, righteous person, our father. He was the one who saved Am Yisrael. And what did he save? He said that you can be Lidorotam, even in the Midbar. You can be the people of the Nachala, even in the Midbar. And so they said to Moshe Rabbeinu, don't you think that our father, who was righteous, he may have gone too far, but that he deserves a nachalah, because that's what he saved. Not because there's some technicality which would give him the nachalah. That's not our argument, as the Gemara says. We're not arguing anything, but we are saying that he, Tzalavchad, saved his people and kept them within this notion of Nachalah, even when they were in the Midbar. So don't you think that he deserves to get an inheritance in Eretz Yisrael? Have a good Shabbos.